Guardian Unlimited. Hello, I'm Alison Benjamin, and this is Environment Weekly. Coming up on this week's show, John Vidal in Abu Dhabi talks to architect Gerard Evenden about building the world's first sustainable city in the desert. What we're trying to do is prove out that it's possible to build a city on a site and provide the power source for that city from that site. And we're off to Switzerland to learn which is the world's most environmentally unfriendly company. This is Environment Weekly from Guardian Unlimited. Before I introduce you to my guests in the studio, here are some of this week's environment headlines. Environment News. Biofuel crops will harm the planet, says The Telegraph. The Guardian reports the EU's green targets may force the UK to increase renewables fivefold. War of the Whales. Eco-warrior Paul Watson engaged in furious fight with Japanese whalers and Greenpeace, says the Sunday Times. With me to discuss these eco-stories is David Adam, The Guardian's environment correspondent, and Leo Hickman, ethical living editor for the paper. Hello, you two. Hello. Hello. Now, we've had two reports in as many weeks warning that biofuels are not a panacea for cutting greenhouse gas emissions. First, the Royal Society warned that only the right type of biofuel will do the trick. And now the House of Commons Environmental Audit Committee says that biofuels can do more harm than good. The MPs argue that if forests are being raised to make way for sugarcane fields or palm oil plantations, then it becomes counterproductive. And they warn that growing crops for fuel rather than for food is also likely to increase food prices around the world. David, do you think the MPs are right to call for a moratorium on European Union targets for biofuels? Do we need more of a debate? I think on balance they probably are. I think it's worth, to me this demonstrates the way the environment debate goes because a few years ago nobody had heard of biofuels and then suddenly they're everywhere as, as, as a great solution, and now suddenly they're bad. And, of course, the truth is somewhere in between. Anyone who's been to Brazil can't say that biofuels are bad for the planet. It works perfectly well in Brazil. They have an indigenous supply of sugarcane. They turn it into, into ethanol, and they, they can run their cars on it. The problem is, of course, when you start needing biofuels where you can't produce them. And that's the situation we have in Britain. I mean, most people might not realise that if you go to certain supermarkets, you, you already use biofuel. Some of the supermarkets fill, I think it's 5% of their petrol with ethanol. But that isn't ethanol produced within Britain from, from British crops. That's ethanol bought on the world market. And clearly, if we have a, a rapid scaling up of that, with no control on where it comes from, and certainly no checks on the sustainability of where it comes from, then we could be in trouble. Do you think it's feasible to have sustainable palm oil, for example? We've heard from people like Friends of the Earth, that you know, it's very difficult to actually determine what's sustainable and what isn't, Leo. Palm oil is a particularly tricky option when it comes to biofuels, and I would say that's probably got to be one of the worst examples, where you're actively hacking down rainforests, which have their own climate-positive, obvious reasons for keeping them upright, and replacing it with sort of palm plantations is, is a huge concern, and obviously the way that it crosses over into our need for food as well, and when those cross over, you've got all sorts of problems. Like most of these things, there's going to be a place for it, but to, to be the sudden panacea for all our concerns is clearly nonsense, and it's a dangerous way to go. I mean, one Thing I'm keeping an eye on is next month's test flight by Virgin, who are going to be flying sort of about 25% mix of biofuel 
from London to Amsterdam, I wouldn't want to be on that plane particularly, but um, <laughs> they've assured everyone there's going to be no pa- passengers on board. Say that took off, <laughs> excuse the pun, but if that really happened and was seen as a way forward, that to me would be a, a huge concern because then all of a sudden we've got this enormous demand and where on earth is all that going to be grown, all that biofuel? Um, and some people have already taken matters into their own hands and are filling their cars with cooking oil and sharing their methods on YouTube as we're here now. Basically, they ran vegetable oil as fuel in Europe until the late 1920s. And then what happened? Well, they basically buried it. They buried the technology, and they didn't want anybody ever to find out again. That these diesels could run on peanut oil. Because it has such a high lubricity content to it, that all the things about a diesel engine that the consumer hates, the noise, the clatter, the pollution, all of those properties are completely gone. And I figured, well, i got to rebuild the fuel system anyways. What the heck, you know? So I fired it up, and I dribbled the oil into the engine. And it didn't just run. It ran great. And what kind of oil was this? It was Mazzola from just, the kitchen. Just out of the bottle in your kitchen. <laughs> the problem with that is it ends up smelling of chips. What, what do you think, Leo? That sounds quite nice to me. I'm quite hungry now. <laughs> I, mean, I think that's a, a very minor distraction. If that, To me, it's a, it's a great use of a waste product. But the problem, obviously, is if you scale this up to be all cars on the planet, then we clearly wouldn't have enough vegetable oil. So at this level, it's a great use of what is currently a waste product and that we should always be seeking uses for waste. But... I think um, for all of us to suddenly be running our cars on vegetable oil, we go back to the original biofuels problem of where on earth do we grow all this and what does that, what implications does that have for the food production, um, for example, around the planet? What do you think the solution is, David? I, th- I think, again, I come back to what I said before, that biofuels have a place. And it's important to be precise about what kind of biofuel you're talking about in what um, application. The solution would be a second-generation biofuel that, that doesn't require a specific crop to be grown. You can just take waste vegetable matter. They're already talking about this, aren't they? Well, they're, they're doing more than talking about it. They are, they are working on it. I've written about a company in Canada that takes uh, waste coffee shells... Um, and turns those into a fuel. The problem is that the the capital investment to build the kind of refinery, effectively, that you need is just very, very big. And at the moment, it can't compete with petrochemicals. But if you want a solution, that's it. We invest in biofuels that you do not need a specific crop to be grown. You can just use waste vegetable matter. And you say that at the moment, you know, maybe the incentive isn't there to invest. But things like, for example, the EU coming up with targets for renewable energy this week. I mean, we've now got a target for Britain that they have to get 15% by 2020. 15% of our energy will have to come for renewables. At the moment, it's only about less than 3%. So do you think it's going to be feasible with these kind of methods? It's a very complicated situation because for it to change the economics, the government would have to change the tax regime on fuel for cars. And at the moment, it would be the same companies that would build these biorefineries. And so there's no incentive for them to do that. If we don't meet our target by 2020, that's not the company's problem. It's the government's problem and ultimately ours as a taxpayer. There would have to be a whole sequence of financial shifts involved to drive that forwards and I can't see the government doing it. When it comes to transport they see um, existing biofuels as, as one of the solutions and when it comes to this EU target because that covers transport, heat and electricity, it's all forms of energy I was at a briefing yesterday, they say there's very little they can do on heat because we're also well hooked up to the gas mains um, it's a legacy of having cheap North Sea gas 
And so they're putting all of their eggs in the electricity basket. Um, EU target means we have to generate 40% of our electricity from renewable sources by 2020 to get an average of 15% of our energy. I think it's good to set targets. I mean, you've got to have goals to aim at. Um, If you fall short of it, which hopefully they won't, then at least you've you know, heading in the right direction, but it is clearly going to be a tough ask for all the reasons that David's mentioned. I would always throw kind of rising oil prices into the mix as being an incentive that would hopefully drive further investment into this and mean that there's a sort of a market reason or reality for why this would be picked up and not just hopefully rely on a big old hefty shove from government. The smart money in the US is on, on solar power. Solar power is, is a different application. You're not going to get many cars running no, on solar power, true. and certainly not in Britain anytime soon. The thing about solar power is that it's very ideally suited to sort of niche applications at the moment, the space station being the, mo- the most obvious one. But if we also have like electric cars come more onto the market, then you can hopefully get a bit of mm. that solar power coming through the grid and being fed into charging up cars. I mean, there's hope that you know it could all be integrated a, bit, a lot more than it might be at the moment. But you know, I agree we're kind of slightly way off that at the moment. Mm. My view is that we haven't got a hope in hell of meeting a 15% target by 2020. So if you want to set a higher target just so we can miss it, then go ahead. But it would be hugely difficult to get 40% of our electricity from renewable sources within 13 years, especially because the first thing the government will do, uh, now it's got this instruction from the EU, is order a review in how to do it which will come back in 18 months' time and say exactly what we know now, that it's very difficult. We need to invest heavily in wind, certainly because wind is the only option at the moment to generate large amounts of renewable electricity. They will invest in the tidal barrage and the seven. Mm-hmm. They will talk about tidal and solar, but that won't really come on stream in the next decade as they need it to. Just or they'll sort of fiddle the numbers some clever way and they'll be able to sort of tot up their renewable count by the fact that they're importing goods made with renewable energy on the other side of the planet, or they'll, they'll probably... I think they call it statistical reinterpretation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, does it matter to the planet where it's coming from? I think it matters from a point of principle. If we, as a very developed country, should sort of make the leap first, in a way, as we have the emissions legacy on our watch, really, it shouldn't be seen that we've dodged and ducked these issues um, just so we can get under the wire on a certain target. We have to clearly show leadership on it. And it matters an awful lot if you care about energy security. You know, we have to be generating our own electricity. We can't be dependent on high-voltage cable from North Africa mm. with solar panels or whatever it might be. Energy security is as, as important as climate change to the government, and they will want Britain to be producing its own energy, its own clean energy. Last week on the show, you may remember I spoke to anti-whaling activist Captain Paul Watson while two of his Sea Shepherd crew were being held by the Japanese fleet. The story generated a huge amount of media coverage. Leo, you took up the story on your Ethical Living blog, didn't you? Um, yeah, that's right. I've always been sort of interested in this balancing point between which campaigners must always have to go through about whether they sort of push it too far and get negative publicity or whether they don't push it enough and don't make any headlines at all. And w- what that point is and whether you can ever really control that as a campaign or whether you know events sort of overtake you. This was a, f- a good example of a story that I, where this can happen potentially when we had two of the 
crew boarding one of the whaling ships and okay they got you know quote unquote held hostage for a couple of days and then released and it kind of made headlines around the world generally there's been a lot of sympathy for the anti-whaling cause if they say had slipped up injured one of the whaling crew or themselves fallen into the water or something the whole story and the whole dynamics of how that story worked would have been completely different well, we've all witnessed really over the past decade or so how the animal rights um, protesters have kind of lost the momentum mm-hmm. of public sympathy because a few of them have majorly overstepped the mark some would say every time a campaign happens I'm always kind of interested in how it pans out yeah will you actually ask people what they thought were examples of successful green protests here are what some of you had to say in Australia saving the Franklin River in Tasmania was the first example of large-scale direct action and also arguably the most successful it has never been dammed and remains one of the most beautiful places in our country Possibly it was so successful because it had never been done quite like that before and people weren't quite so jaded or weary. In New Zealand, the most prominent protest would have to be the Labour government protest led by Norman Kirk against atmospheric nuclear testing by the French at Mururoa in 1973. Two Navy frigates, HMNZS Canterbury and HMNZS Otago, were sent into the testing zone. However, it didn't stop the testing. When the Rainbow Warrior was bombed by the French in Auckland Harbour in 1985, the whole issue of nuclear testing in the Pacific went global. It was only the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty in 1996 that stopped the testing. So did the protest do any good? Did it affect French policy? Well, you can tell us which eco-protests you think worked and which didn't at blogs.guardian.co.uk slash ethical living. I'm Alison Benjamin. Still to come on this edition of Environment Weekly, we get the latest on Guardian Unlimited's Tread Lightly campaign. World leaders and global corporations are gathering for the annual World Economic Forum in Davos in Switzerland. Our campaign of the week is there too. The Public Eye Awards aim to expose large corporations whose employment practices and environmental record are so bad that politicians shouldn't really be doing business with them. The winners are those companies that have displayed the most contemptuous corporate behaviour towards both people and the environment during the year. Sonia Ribby from Friends of the Earth Switzerland explains. Hello, my name is uh, Sonia Ribby, International Coordinator with Pronatura, Friends of the Earth Switzerland. The public eye has served already as an alternative public platform to the World Economic Forum for the past nine years. The purpose is to highlight the darker sides of globalization. We are convinced that only an informed public can set up the necessary pressure for change. The Public Eye Awards stand for irresponsible corporate behavior towards people and the environment. This week, alongside to the World Economic Forum, Friends of the Earth Switzerland and the Byrne Declaration announced the winners of the Public Eye Awards. The Public Eye Global Award goes to Areva, French nuclear technology giant. The Public Eye Swiss Award goes to Glencore, Swiss-based producer of commodities and raw materials. In Colombia, Glencore coal mines are causing massive pollution. The flow of rivers are interrupted while used in the mines to wash the coal. The unfiltered water is eventually returned to the streams. To end on a positive note, the Public Eye Positive Award in recognition of pioneering corporate initiatives goes to Hess Natur, a pioneer for natural textiles since 1976. For further information, publiceye.ch. That was Sonia Ruby in Davos, sounding very serious there. 
And if you know of any green campaigns anywhere in the world that you think we should feature on this podcast, tell us at blogs.guardian.co.uk ethical living. From the snow-capped Alps to the heat of the Gulf, let's join John Vidal in Abu Dhabi. He's at the World Future Energy Summit and has tracked down the architect behind what will be the world's first sustainable city. Jared Evenden, you are largely responsible for this design. Can you tell us how you went about it? I mean, it it seems to have a lot of flavours of old cities. Well, it came from considerable research in the region, looking at the way in which historically people have reacted to the environment and looking at the lessons that can be learnt for modern architecture, particularly in terms of orientation. Orientation being absolutely fundamental. So this is the way it faced the sun and and how much sun and shade it gets. Exactly. And in the process of sustainable architecture, the first thing that's absolutely essential is the reduction in power load. Mm -hmm. And so the orientation in order to reduce the thermal gain Mm -hmm. um, in any development, whether it be a building or whether it be a whole city, is to make sure that the orientation is correct. Mm -hmm. Hence, When you look back at uh, older cities, you find not only do they orientate themselves in the right direction in relation to the sun and obviously the east-west, you have far more direct sunlight here because of the sun being so high overhead. The north-south, you get more shade into your streets, particularly if you narrow the streets. So the width of streets, the relationships of one building to another and the orientation to the sun are critical. How narrow are these streets? Is it the old souk? The the streets vary between uh, four and seven metres, depending on where you are in the city, and depending on the type of route that we're we're creating. Running through the centre is the LRT route, light railway uh, transport. The light railway runs and forms really the spine of the development, uh, connecting all the key uh, landmark buildings together, forming, uh, if you like, the high street to the city. Um, The network of streets that then run off of that create the community spaces. And the development is about small streets opening into bigger spaces, spaces which can be used, spaces which provide shade, um, spaces sometimes with water. The length of the streets is also a, um, a critical factor. What we've, what we've discovered through the process is, first of all, people in the middle of summer can probably walk about 150 metres comfortably, which isn't a long distance. Mm-hmm. From our research into the streets, we found that streets which, which were around 70 metres long provided the best microclimate because the air that flushes through the street mm-hmm. flushes out the warm air. If streets become longer, the warm air begins to fall into those streets. But you're going back to old systems of wind towers to flush out, to collect the breezes. Exactly, because turbulence in the street is, again, a good thing. Because the best way that the streets work, and and again, looking back to the past, if you can afford wind movement and air movement within the streets, you flush the streets of their hot air, and the microclimate becomes much more pleasant. So people are going to need air conditioning? They will need air conditioning in specific parts of the building, and the master plan sets up to uh, create a series of rules. You reckon you can reduce the total energy load of the city by, what, 50%, 40%? We're hoping to reduce it around 40%. That's phenomenal. uh, Where's the the, the energy going to come from? The energy is primarily solar. 
the region that we're in, the wind is not constant and it's not really strong enough to provide really good wind energy, uh, which was a surprise to us being on the coast, but we're probably only, uh, only actually achieving about 1% mm-hmm. from, the, from the wind. Primary source will be solar in a combination of concentrated solar power, mm-hmm. uh, thermal tubes and photovoltaics. Mm-hmm. In addition, we're also converting waste to energy and that will be another major source of, of power. And we're looking at processing all of the waste. This will be the first zero-carbon, zero-waste city. Uh, we can gain a considerable amount of energy from waste. What we're trying to do is prove out that it's possible to build a city on a site and provide the power source for that city from that site. So the city becomes a power station itself? Itself. So there is a, what, what becomes very clear is that there is a balance between the amount of area that you develop, the density of the development, and the area around the city that balances that development in terms of its power generation and recycling and processing of the waste. Has anything like this been tried before? As far as we know, nothing's been tried before on this scale uh, and with such backing. And what was a huge surprise to us when we started the project was how far Mazda were as an initiative in bringing major institutions together to make this project happen. And with government funding behind it, we're absolutely convinced that this will materialise into a reality. I've heard that it could cost up to 10, 15, 20 billion dollars. Is there, is there any, any real idea of how much it is going to cost? At the moment, what we're doing is we're working alongside cost planners. Uh, a cost model is, is being done by Ernst & Young in, in parallel with all the work we're doing. And again, the plan is is through the process to look at the commercial viability of these systems in development in relation to scale and in relation to the products that we're we're producing. So as we go through this process, yes, a commercial model is is developing and yes, a cost plan is developing. Um, it, It will take time. And at the moment, the information is related to the market today with the demands that we will have for collectors and and so on. That hopefully will will begin to bring costs down and we'll begin to see what the real commercial balance will be with building an environmental city in the future. The one thing you haven't explained yet is how people are going to move around. If they're not walking... There's quite a big city. How are they going to get around? Well, there's three major forms of movement. The first is pedestrian movement. And as I said before, we're looking at a maximum of about 150 metres walking distance. Um, Beyond that, up to about 500 metres, we're looking at systems of transport like cycles and segways. And the the most important thing is that the false ground plane, which is at a, a deck level, is a purely pedestrian and cycle level for people to move around. Below that is what we call the personalised rapid transport system. What's that? This is a driverless vehicle, which is a personalised vehicle. You call it to your door. Uh, You can set a time for it to arrive. It just arrives. It just just arrives like a lift. Uh, You programme in a destination, then it takes you to your destination in the most appropriate route, avoiding traffic congestion. So it's a horizontal lift. Have these things been tried before? Yes, the technology is proven technology. Uh, The Port of Rotterdam uh, uses a similar system to move its uh, containers around. That was Gerard Evenden talking to John Vidal. Leo, isn't building cities in deserts fundamentally unsustainable, whether or not the buildings are powered by solar or wind? You know, what about the water supply and erosion and damage to, you know, the natural ecosystem? Well, I mean, people have got to live in different habitats all over and environments all over the world. So some people are clearly going to be living 
living in deserts. But I must say, I'm, I took with a slight pinch of salt the, the term uh, world's first sustainable city. I think if they're going to be pouring their billions of petro dollars into this research, and that I suppose is a good thing because it will help nurture and encourage investment and investigation into these technologies. But I think we have to look at the region and the country which is um, doing this and the fact that it looks like they're playing a bit of a catch-up game with their emirate next door, Dubai, which has pretty much laid down the marker now for this sort of mantra that if you're an oil-rich state, you kind of look to diversify your portfolio by building mega tourist attractions or whatever it may be. And it's basically a race to build the brashest, highest profile building or whatever it may be in the world. Water is a huge issue in, in those regions and whether you have to turn to desalination to produce fresh water and, the, how, and how energy intensive that is. Certainly one to watch, but I would certainly take it with a bit of a pinch of salt. Ultimately, the world will be saved by loft insulation, but it's just far less interesting to talk about. Yeah, we've talked about this before on the show, haven't we, Leo? How's your loft insulation going? Um, very nicely, actually. <laughs> very snug and toasty in the middle of January. It's an incredibly important point. In fact, there's just this week, the Mayor of London has, for example, has announced that there's going to be a greatly subsidised new loft insulation scheme where for like a hundred pounds or something you can just get a DIY kit for doing it yourself and to me that's where a lot of this money should be spent almost go down the sort of road that Germany seems to be taking where let's get the current housing stock Mm. nicely insulated and snug and warm first before we start building big gleaming new carbon zero housing estates all over the country. Finally Jessica Aldred's here to tell us about this week's pledge for Tread Lightly Guardian Unlimited's online community that's helping 4,000 people live a low-carbon lifestyle. So we're saving energy in the home again this week. We're asking readers to remember to switch off lights in empty rooms. It's an obvious thing, but it can make a big difference to your carbon footprint and energy bills. So you can make this pledge from Friday by logging on to guardian.co.uk forward slash treadlightly. Thanks, Jessica. David, are you trying to live a green lifestyle? Since I got the job as environment correspondent, I've lived in fear of you know, Greenpeace <laughs> sort of descending on me and auditing my lifestyle. But I don't do too badly on most of the things. I live in quite a small flat. I have a small car, which I drive rarely. I cycle to work. But I've done one of these carbon footprint analyses with one of the, I think it was WWF. Oh. And, and as soon as you fly once, it completely swamps all of the savings that you make elsewhere. I sort of got rather disillusioned by the whole thing and, and thought, not that there's no point doing all of the small stuff but it's the big stuff that's the problem and I do fly I fly with work uh, my brother lives in Scotland and I'd love to get the train all the way up there but it's just too expensive and I, I will fly to Scotland and I'm sorry I, I will <laughs> well that's it for this edition of Environment Weekly my thanks to David Adam and to Leo Hickman and to my producer Ian Chambers don't forget to give us your feedback by clicking on blogs.guardian.co.uk slash ethical living I'm Alison Benjamin thanks for listening Guardian Unlimited.